Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. And as we uh, begin this morning, I want to start off just by reading our passage in the first five verses of Romans 2. Paul writes, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because you're hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is Paul's message in the opening verses of this chapter. It is a simple message, a short message, a straightforward and yet a forceful message. Spoken to the one, Paul says, who judges. The one who would presumably judge all of those that he's just spoken about at the end of chapter 1. You remember he ended that chapter with a list of vices full of things like covetousness and malice and envy and murder and slander and disobedience to parents, and all sorts of things. And now he turns his attention not to simply those who would approve of all that kind of activity. Remember, that's the way he ended the chapter, speaking of those who either engage in and uh, excuse themselves or approve those who would conduct themselves in that way. Paul now turns his attention to those who disapprove to those who would stand on the other side of the aisle, to those who would stand with some level of moral dignity and moral reputation. And eventually when we get down to verse 17, we find out that particularly he is addressing those who are Jews, those who would stand under the law of God and those who would be in the religious tradition of Judaism. But at this point, he doesn't name the Jew. He just names the person who judges. The, we might call the self-satisfied moralist. The one with a sense of satisfaction in themselves because they have the right doctrine, because they have all the outward disciplines, because they have all of the outward appearances. And Paul simply characterizes them as the one who judges. Now, he's not talking about a person who evaluates. He's not talking about someone who discerns. He's not talking about someone who simply makes, if you will, uh, choices between right and wrong or even upholds what is right. That's not the way he uses the word judge here, although it may be used that way From time to time, in popular culture, certainly today, that's the way it's used. It is used as a a sense of anyone who would make a discerning choice, used of anyone 
who would evaluate another person's behavior. It's used of anyone who might criticize another person's behavior. And so people commonly refer to those who judge and commonly quote the scripture against them, thou shalt not judge, as if the Bible wants us to set aside all discernment. That's not the way Paul uses this passage, uh, that word here in this passage, nor is it the way it's often used in Scripture. Paul uses the word here the same way it's used in John 3.17, when the Scripture says that God sent His Son into the world, not to judge the world, but in order that the world through Him might be saved. He's not suggesting, John that God sent His Son into the world without making any kind of evaluation of the world's conduct. He's not suggesting that God sent His Son into the world without any sort of judgment as to whether their behavior is right or wrong. And He's not saying He sent His Son into the world without any level of criticism of the world's behavior. But He's setting a contrast between God the Son sent into the world to save the world versus God the Son sent into the world to punish the world. And this is the way the world, the word judge is used. It's used in the sense of condemnation. Used in the sense of punishment inflicted on people. And what he's saying is God sent His Son into the world and He withheld punishment. He sent him into the world not to judge in that sense. Paul's using the word the same way here. When he speaks about the person who judges in Romans 2.1, he immediately says that if you judge others, you judge yourself. Or as many translations say it, you condemn yourself. Same word there, krino, katakrino. The same basic concept of of inflicting punishment or inflicting some sort of uh, adverse circumstance. When you judge, he says, you are calling down the same kind of punishment on yourself that you would mandate for others. This is the same basic meaning the word has down in verse 3 when it speaks about God's coming judgment, God's coming condemnation. He's not saying that God has not yet decided what he thinks about all of the sinful activity in the world. He is suggesting that God's punishment of that evil has not yet come. And so when Paul speaks to the person who is judging, he's not speaking to the person who simply demonstrates discernment. He's not talking to the person who would even warn others about the dangers of sin. He's not talking about the person who properly evaluates the conduct of others and gives a biblical response. He's speaking to the self-satisfied moralist who has a tendency to see the guilty conduct of others, the imperfect conduct of others, and to treat them with scorn to oppressively condemn them, to publicly defame them, to treat them with contempt, with disrespect, with ridicule. He's speaking of the person 
who, seeing the misconduct of others, would ostracize them, would isolate them, would withhold fellowship from them unnecessarily, not greet them, or whatever it might be, they would condemn them. Rather than understanding their biblical responsibility to come alongside such a person in their weakness and their ignorance or whatever it might be, this is the person who distances themselves from the weak, who distances themselves from the struggling, from the immature, from the faint-hearted. They judge them. They have the all-too-common tendency to be as harsh in their assessment of others as they are lenient in their assessment of themselves. They have the right doctrine. They have the right ethics. They have all of those things in place. They affirm all the right things. And yet they judge others. His message is to them. And Paul wants to speak to them just as he did to the immoral pagans of chapter 1. And he wants them to understand something very, very clearly. That when it comes to the final judgment, God will treat them no different than he treats the immoral pagan. He wants them to understand Exactly what he had told the uh, pagans, if you will, back in verse 20 of chapter 1. If you remember there, he says that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived by the unbelieving world. And so therefore, they are without excuse. And now Paul wants to pick up the very same term... And he applies it in verse 1 of chapter 2 to the religious. When he says, therefore, you have no excuse. You who judge others. These people would very much stand opposite of those in chapter 1. If those in chapter 1, as Paul ends that by, uh, by saying that they, uh, they excuse one another or approve one another, this would be the disapproving crowd. They would disapprove of all the conduct that he gave there, all the slanderous conduct, all the covetous conduct, all the disobedience to parents. They would disapprove of all that, but they would assume that because they disapprove, because they affirm the evil of those things that that establishes them in a place of special favor with God. And Paul's message is just the opposite. That they are just as guilty before God. No matter what they think, they are just as guilty before God as all of those immoral pagans. They are without excuse. Far too often, it is their affirmation of all those right things which causes them to obscure the failures in their own life. It is their affirmation of the right doctrine and the right conduct and the right uh, uh, even uh, affirmation of ethics 
that causes them to miss the glaring deficiencies in their own life. So even those who disapprove all those things, your disapproval doesn't change your status before God. You may hate those kinds of deeds and attitudes, and rightly so, but it only stresses the guilt that you have when you turn around and practice those very same things. Now, this is Paul's point, and he makes it into forceful statements to the self-satisfied moralist in this passage. He, he confronts them, if you will, in two ways, or characterizes them in two ways. First of all, he confronts them because the moralist assumes their own goodness. They assume their own goodness. The one who judges, Paul says, in passing judgment on another person, you condemn yourself. Why? Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. In all their affirmation about what is right and what is wrong, in all their affirmation about the right kind of conduct that ought to be expected, and all their affirmation about all the right doctrines, the one glaring thing that seems to miss their perception all the time, the one glaring thing which is minimized by them in all of the right things that they have, is all of the ways in which they fail to please God. And so, in judging others, they practice the same things. Say, what kind of things? Well, all the things Paul's just listed. All of maybe not murder and maybe even not adultery or hatred towards God, but certainly things like envy and strife and gossip and boasting and heartlessness. Paul says that you are guilty of those things. Not that every person is guilty of everything that he's listed in that list or even listed throughout chapter 1. Not that every person is guilty of everything on that list. It's not the totality of your failure that he's trying to emphasize. It's the culpability. It's the fact that in calling out such behavior, in condemning such behavior, you are demonstrating the clarity of your own thought and therefore the responsibility to it. This is what Jesus himself taught, right? In Matthew chapter 7, with the same measure that you measure to others, it will be measured to you. And the same judgment with which you judge others, it will be judged to you. In other words, your judgment demonstrates a level of responsibility and a level of accountability that you are not taking stock of. Or in similar fashion, this is why James says to you, let not many of you become teachers. Why? Because when you are a teacher, there is a stricter judgment. There is a higher level of accountability because you, as a teacher, demonstrate a greater amount of knowledge and therefore a greater responsibility. 
Because you, in calling out the conduct of others, demonstrate the clarity with which you understand the sinfulness of that conduct. And so, when you turn around with boastfulness, and when you turn around with arrogance, and when you turn around with envy, and when you turn around with strife, when you turn around with division, or whatever it might be, when you turn around with those kinds of behaviors, you condemn yourself. This is Paul's message. This is Jesus' message. In your eagerness to point out all the wrong in others, you often overlook the failures of your own life. And so Paul says, we, verse 2, we know the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Have you somehow forgotten that you too stand under the judgment of God? Have you so minimized your own sins that you have somehow begun to think that you will escape, that you will not need to stand under God's scrutiny? Paul literally, Paul reminds them here by by saying literally God's judgment rightly falls, or it says literally, according to the truth, falls against those who practice such things, as opposed to according to the appearance, as opposed to according to the facade, according to all the other things that you sort of Uh, go through life on, it will be according to the truth, not according to the same superficial standards by which the self-satisfied religionist judges himself. It won't be according to the same superficial standard by which you judge uh, uh, others and are lenient on yourself. It won't be by the same superficial standard by which others judge you. It will be according to the truth. And even though you may have a different standard for yourself, more gracious for yourself than you are with other people, and even though you may be more prone to be more understanding with yourself than you are with other people, God is not going to have a different standard for you. In fact, this is Paul's point down in verse 11. There is no partiality with God. You may be partial to yourself, but God is not. You see, the self-sufficient moralist rides through life on this false notion that God is going to judge him in the same superficial way that everyone else judges him or her. So that if he can prove to everyone else that he has a certain level of respectable conduct and if he can prove to everyone else that he has a certain level of doctrinal uh, uh, orthodoxy and if he can prove to everyone else that he has a, a certain level of religious duty, he assumes that because everyone else approves that God's going to approve. He assumes his own goodness. His secret hope is that God is going to be just as satisfied with him as he is with himself. But all those things in which he finds his self-satisfaction obscure the fact 
that he or she still engages in sin. And so Paul's confrontation, it's not because you pick out the wrong conduct of others, but it is that in treating them or responding to them by withholding your fellowship from them, by withholding your love from them, by withholding your greetings from them, whatever it might be, by that sort of harsh treatment of them, you are no longer reflecting the fact that you realize just how gracious God has had to be with you. You no longer extend grace. You no longer extend kindness. You you don't do any of that because you have no concept of how gracious God has been with you because in your mind, God ought to be gracious with you. Because you're above everyone else. Which leads to our second reason why Paul, why Paul confronts this self-satisfied religionist. It's not only because they assume their own goodness, but because they presume God's forgiveness. Verse 4, do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The superficial moralist assumes that because his life or her life isn't necessarily experiencing a lot of outwardly adverse effects of sin, that God must be in approval of them. You imagine that those people who are in poverty or those people who are in sickness or those people who are in some other adverse circumstance are there because they have not lived as righteously as you. And you factor out the goodness of God. So you think you're in right with God because when you sin, God doesn't bring those kinds of of punishments into your life. And because He's not punishing you in any severe way right now, you assume that when it comes to the final judgment, He will treat you with the same kind of immunity then that you are experiencing now. The same kind of privileged exemption from any kind of punishment. But Paul says, you are misjudging the kindness of God. You presume upon that kindness. A kindness which Paul further describes as forbearance and patience. It is true, God has been kind to you. It is true that He hasn't dealt immediately with your pride and your arrogance and your heartlessness or your greed or your lust. But it's not because of your religious duties. It's not because of your right doctrine. It's not because of your superior righteousness. It is simply... His kindness to overlook all your evil. It is simply His patience, His forbearance or long-suffering with all of your wrongdoing. 
that patience and that long-suffering and all that kindness was never intended to give you a false sense of security. It was never intended to give you the sense that somehow God approves of you or that He will approve of you in the end. In fact, you, you know what it was intended for? It was intended to give you time. It was intended to give you space. Space and time to repent. Or as Paul says, it was intended to lead you to repentance. And he's not suggesting that God's kindness, whenever it is shown in forbearance and patience, is not suggesting that whenever God shows forbearance and patience, that it always makes every person repent. He's not saying that it necessarily brings about that effect in everyone, but that is its intent. In other words, Paul isn't talking about the kindness of God in efficacious grace, which sometimes brings about fruits of repentance in the life of a true believer. But he's talking about the kindness of God towards so many people, especially towards unbelievers. As God overlooks your sin, it's not necessarily that he approves of you. It's because he's giving you yet another opportunity to deal with that sin, yet another season in which to repent. And yet the self-satisfied, self-righteous person misinterprets that to mean that God is satisfied with them just as they are satisfied with themselves. They interpret the kindness of God To mean that God approves of them now and that he will approve of them then. But the reality is, you still haven't repented. The reality is, you are still harboring the same sins in your heart and life. The same sins that you have been hiding for years. You have an outward facade. You have an outward appearance of respectability. But inwardly your heart has become hardened and unrepentant. And you shouldn't be deceived by the outward kindness of God. As if he doesn't take notice. Paul says in verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Or as Peter says in 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance but the day of the lord will come like a thief in the night when the heavens will pass away with a roar the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are in it or will be uh, done away with and exposed in other words don't imagine that because god appears slow or inactive in responding to your sin that he will never respond Don't assume that he does not take notice 
of your hardened heart because he hasn't done anything to you. Don't imagine that the day of the Lord will not come with a vengeance against your sin. Don't imagine that because you fool all the people around you that you will also fool God. Don't think that he's going to judge you by the same standard that everyone else judges you. He is going to judge you according to the truth. The truth that you know in your heart, that you do in your secret place. He's going to judge you according to what is real about your life. You know, the sad thing is that in spite of all this kindness and forbearance and patience by God, in spite of so much that God gives to people, there are still so many people who not only presume it, they ignore it. In fact, they even deny it. There are so many people in the world who far from acknowledging God's kindness and goodness, actually don't even think of God as good. There are so many people who, because of an exalted view of themselves, a narcissistic view of themselves, because of a sense of entitlement for themselves, they can't even think about what God has given them because they become so focused on what God has not given them. All they can think about are their failed expectations of what they wanted from God, but He didn't give. Whether it was some job He didn't give them, some relationship He didn't give them, a wife or a husband He didn't give them, or some wealth or prosperity that He didn't give them. He didn't give them health, or He didn't heal their sickness, or He didn't take away their cancer, or He didn't bring back their dying child, or He didn't spare their family from some sort of Uh, torment or pain, all they're focused on is what God didn't give them. And so they refuse to acknowledge God as good at all because they have so many hyped up expectations of what they think God owes them. But the Bible's message is this. God has been very kind to you. Even while you go on in your sin and your unrepentant heart, the fact that God has been slow, one more day, one more breath in not dealing with your sin, the fact that God has been forbearing and patient, one more day to not cast you into hell, The fact that He has given more time for you to recognize your state and repent of your sin. That is all you should need to recognize His kindness. The fact that you have one more breath, one more moment without His judgment is due to one single thing. It is not your righteousness It is not your inherent goodness. It is not that He approves of you. Because you are guilty. 
You're guilty of all the things that you see in other people. You're guilty of all those things that you judge other people for. You're guilty of all those things that you call out other people for. You, who who judge others, practice the same things. And the fact that you have received any patience from God and any kindness has nothing to do with you, has everything to do with God. And Paul's warning to you is don't presume. Don't presume that that kindness will be forever. It can be. It could be. But it won't be because of you. It won't be because of any righteousness that you've lived. Has nothing to do with all the reasons in your mind explaining why you're better than everyone else. Has nothing to do with all that you imagine other people have in terms of respect for you. Has nothing to do with your perception of why you have experienced blessings in this life or escaped trials. Has nothing to do with any of that stuff. Nothing to do with any of your righteousness. If God is to be merciful to you in the end, it has to do with only one thing. Only one thing. It has to do with the righteousness of Christ. It has every bit to do with one who lived a perfect and spotless life before God and offered that life in exchange for your filthy life. God's mercy is established, but it isn't established by your conduct. It isn't established by your behavior. It isn't established by any of your achievements. And the moment you begin to stand on those in derision of others and ridicule of others, scorn of others, you demonstrate the very attitude that God will condemn An attitude that trusts in its own righteousness. An attitude that doesn't take its stand on Christ. Paul says, don't look lightly on the kindness of God. Don't presume too quickly on the kindness of God. He is merciful. He is kind. But he's kind Because of our all-sufficient Savior. Our appeal to you this morning then. Is that you wouldn't stand in this place. And that you wouldn't stand in the final judgment. Having hope on anything else than Him. That your religious conduct. That your ethical conduct. That your respectability in the world means nothing to God. The only thing that means anything to Him is the conduct of His Son. And you can have that applied to you in faith. The Scripture says that everyone who receives Christ is uh, given the right to become the children of God. But without that, you have no right. Your only claim will be Him. So our challenge to you this morning is when we dismiss that you 
wouldn't leave here without making that claim, without, without calling on that name and without renouncing all of your own righteousness and embracing all of his. That is the gospel. That is the call to salvation. And that's the pathway to God's mercy. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful this morning for these reminders. And to the extent that we fail to remember your kindness, to the extent that we fail to remember the darkness of our own life, to the extent that we fail to show that kindness to others, Lord, we this morning want to repent. We want to be humbled again, led to the place where your kindness should lead us place of humility and brokenness, a place of thoughtful repentance and worship. We pray, Father, that you would help us be mindful not only of this as believers, but for any who are here today who have only ever heard a message of ethical righteousness, for those who've never been told so clearly that you'll show no favoritism to anyone. We pray, Father, that you'd grant them repentance, that you'd grant them faith, that you'd grant them life, even today, according to your mercies. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.